someone the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America, sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning. You've tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek, bringing you the latest in cybersecurity news from the past week, broadcasting from AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. You can find us online at our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Twitter at CybersecRadio, uh, Facebook.com slash CybersecRadio, and at email at johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com, and my t- personal Twitter account, at Bambanek. So a lot of uh, news that we're going to get into today uh, in the next few segments here. Uh, bring back our digital partner, CyberScoop, to talk about the, the Trump cell phone uh, issue, uh, some other stuff going on in Washington, D.C. We're going to talk a little bit about cyber terrorism at the end of the show, but wanted to start out talking about a couple of lighter stories and some carries on from uh, some things carried on from last week. The first is uh, going back to the uh, Shadow Brokers leaks. Uh, Shadow Brokers, a criminal espionage entity that stole exploits the NSA uses to hack into computers of terrorists and foreign governments and the like, uh, leaked online. Uh, a couple weeks ago, they uh, posted uh, in the wake of WannaCry, that big global ransomware outbreak uh, we've talked about a couple of times, that they wanted to set up a monthly subscription service so that people can get access to their information. They have actually been trying to monetize this information for quite some time. Uh, Originally tried to sell it for a million Bitcoin, which would have been a whole lot of money. A variety of auctions. Nobody, there's no ever buyers. Uh, And they're back at it again trying to sell it. The interesting news was in the past week, Two security researchers set up a crowdfunding site, uh, a GoFundMe, basically, uh, to put together $25,000 to be part of this service so that when they got the information from shadow brokers, they would responsibly disclose it to software vendors, security researchers, so that we could protect uh, society at large. So they had raised a few thousand dollars. And uh, they eventually actually uh, a couple of days ago had canceled it and said, you know what, never mind. Uh, And one of the entertaining quotes about it from them was, if you ever want to hear a lawyer swear at you over the telephone, uh, say you're going to start a crowdfunding site to buy uh, intelligence community leaked exploits. One of the big things that underlies all of this is, you know, intelligence communities uh, and agencies are going to develop tools and techniques to get into things. That's just what they do. Spies are going to spy. When these got lost last year, uh, there's some indication they may have discreetly told Microsoft and others about it. But there's a lot of people involved in protecting your computers and networks. And the classification of this data is still highly classified. Even today, it's still highly classified. The NSA won't admit that they have it. 
the problem that creates, for instance, for people like me, uh, I, you know, I, I work in this every day. Uh, half of my team has security clearances. They can't even look at this stuff because that goes against the rules they have to abide by for security clearance of downloading uh, and transmitting classified data across the Internet. It would be a crime technically on paper for me to create defenses based on classified data. It's something that we're basically ignoring right now anyway because of the sensitivity of this. But this has led to a whole lot of policy discussion, some of which we've got on to our show of what happens when an intelligence agency develops uh, computer exploits that allow them to remotely access computers and they lose them. Right? These are not like nuclear weapons, which would be bad losing the design for a nuclear weapon, but you have to have a whole lot of engineering to use one and make one. Right? There's a lot more that's needed. For these computer exploits, basically, they're immediately weaponizable. People could have downloaded them from the leaks, turned around, and wrote malware with them, and they did, and not just WannaCry. There was a few other malware families involved. So there's a lot of policy, policy discussions going on right now about this information and what is necessary to, to protect the American public uh, and a lot of conversations going on. I'm sure we will get more uh, into that uh, as in future episodes as there are developments, but Congress is looking at a law called the Patch Act, uh, and there's several other attempts to, uh, to address this problem. Uh, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, going to our next story. Uh, in the past week, China adopted a very strong privacy and cybersecurity law uh, that has rankled a lot of companies that do business in China. On the surface, it looks relatively innocuous, right? It's a, a typical private privacy regime. If it's really sensitive data about Chinese citizens, it needs to be on servers in China. If there's a need to transmit it, then there needs to be a review of it, uh, a, what they're calling a national security review uh, for things that transit national boundaries. And the more sensitive the data is – health records, medical records, financial records, the more rigorous uh, the review is. Uh, and for things that are uh, sensitive or what the Chinese government believes are uh, sensitive and uh, lead to risks of their, their citizens. Multinational firms, people that do business in China and in other countries, are rightfully concerned because this national security review allows them a mechanism to review all the code and the infrastructure involved to make sure there's adequate security controls on there. But as you recall from a few years ago, right, Chinese intelligence services and their intelligence apparatus was often stealing uh, secrets to benefit Chinese companies. So uh, there's concern for Facebook and Google and, uh, and Microsoft, these big businesses that do business in China, that this will require them to expose their source code, their intellectual property and trade secrets to the government just to do business there that can then be used by their competitors. So there's a lot of controversy around, around that right now, but a lot of controversy on data and privacy generally. And what a lot of nations are doing is saying, you know what? I want data about my citizens being stored in my country and not transmitted across national boundaries. This is one of the big tectonic shifts in the technology industry as a result of the Edward Snowden leaks, of the NSA mass surveillance and spying and PRISM and uh, those related things, is nations started getting more sensitive about their data and how things are being transmitted out of their own country. 
so China certainly getting into the game. Europe is very much in that game, and a lot of discussions are being had generally. Uh, the problem is, and then the risk of all of this, is that uh, a lot of the strength of the American econom- economy is our tech sector. If you want to think of big Internet companies, most of them are U.S.-based, Facebook, Google, Microsoft. Uh, there are certainly ones based in China. Alibaba comes to mind. But a lot of the bellwether companies are certainly based in the U.S., and they're having some real difficulties in complying with this stuff in terms of how data uh, getting making sure their uh, data is being kept inside countries so uh, as much as the internet is a global ecosystem i can reach out and talk to anybody in the world there are national level forces saying you know what i want to keep data inside and keep it from leaving national boundaries and you're going to see a lot more of that tension play out uh, here in the coming years Uh, europe's privacy law takes effect uh, next june so there'll be a lot about that in the coming months, and I'm sure we'll talk about it on this show. One last story I wanted to talk about. Uh, we've talked a lot about of election hacking. U.S. authorities reached out to Germany and said, hey, you know what? We're willing to help you if you have any issues. And one of the consequences of the recent meeting between Trump and G7 uh, countries and European partners is that Germany basically said, you know what? We don't want your help. We'll protect our own elections. Thank you very much. So uh, an interesting development. I don't know if there's much commentary to be said on that. Read, read into it as you will. Uh, but certainly there's a lot of people concerned about election security and what's going on. Uh, but the Germans say they don't need our help. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to talk more about what's going on in Washington, D.C. with our digital partner coming up next. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And now, focus on government. My idea of a perfect government is one guy who sits in a small room at a desk, and the only thing he's allowed to decide is who to nuke. Government is the problem. Cybersecurity. There's a new virus in the database. What's happening? It's replicating, eating up memory. Uh, what do I do? Type cookie, you idiot. Welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Uh, going on with current events and some news, some things happening in D.C. in regards to cybersecurity. We are joined by Greg Otto, managing editor of CyberScoop, cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. Have a lot of great news and information uh, every day they're putting up on that website, so definitely take a look at that. Uh, good morning, and how are you doing today, Greg? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? I am living the dream every day. Only way to live. Exactly right. So let's go right into it. Uh, One of the big stories you've been covering this week is the Department of Homeland Security has established a bug bounty program where they're uh, giving rewards for hackers who are breaking into the DHS. Uh, uh, Tell us briefly, uh, break it down, exactly what, what is a bug bounty program and why is it important that DHS put one together? So a bug bounty program is uh, a program that is set up by enterprises where they fence off a certain amount of their public-facing systems and allow people 
that have been cleared to poke around in those systems in order to find vulnerabilities. Uh, this has been catching on inside the government. Uh, there has been some pilot programs at inside DOD, inside uh, GSA, inside the IRS, and now a bipartisan group of senators introduced a bill that would establish a bug bounty program inside the Department of Homeland Security. Now, why this is interesting is this is actually the first bill hmm. that would put forth a bug bounty program. All of the other bug bounty programs inside the government have come from the agencies themselves. The first one came from former uh, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter um, when he established Hack the Pentagon. Uh, that was a partnership with uh, Hacker One, where they allowed people to poke around certain websites and certain systems that were stood up by the DOD. And they, the DOD actually ended up paying out about $71,000 to people that found bounties uh, in these programs. So um, it is interesting that there is a bill that is going to move forward on this. And if I was predicting the outcome of this bill, I would say that this is just more like a kick in the pants to DHS from Capitol Hill saying, you know, you guys guard the federal infrastructure. You guys should be doing something like this. Uh, well, and that kind of an interesting question, right? DHS touches a lot of classified information. They're, uh, you know, kind of a clearinghouse of law, infesta, law enforcement data uh, and other stuff. I mean, what could they expose aside of their public website uh, in terms of things that's worth protecting uh, for such a program? Well, I don't know if they would do that in necessarily what is there as far as what a, you know, prospective bug bounty program would look like, because the way that these have worked before in the government, um, the agencies might partner with HackerOne or a more rigid bounty program from SINAC. And, you know, it's up to the agency to put out there uh, publicly what they want people to poke around on. So don't get me wrong, there is always the possibility of human error, but I mean, there's also the possibility of human error without these bug bounty programs where something is touching the internet that should not be touching the public internet. So uh, it is up to the agencies to figure out what they want to be included in part of the bug bounty programs. But I think that with the help of whatever um, bug bounty program issuer uh, that DHS would eventually sort of rope in to set that up. I think that they would work well and make sure that that does not happen. Yeah, I just, like I said, looking at this, you know, I kind of saw DOD, all right, I get that. You know, why why DHS? Uh, you know, why propose legislation? I think that's kind of an interesting thing to kind of pick on them and kick on them. I mean, why not the IRS? The IRS has got tons of confidential data or health and human services. Whereas, um, yeah, I don't know if they actually traffic in health records, but certainly an important role in a lot of people's healthcare systems. Um, well, I think, you know, you talked about the IRS. The IRS does actually have a private bug bounty program with a company called Synac. And okay. Synac differs from a lot of the other bug bounty uh, companies out there in that Synac has like a roster of hackers that they have already cleared that work mm -hmm. on whatever mm -hmm. Synac gives to them. With, where some of these other companies where it's just anybody that wants to poke around is welcome to do so as long as they go through the company website. Now, um, 
I think you bring up a, a good point when it comes to these other agencies like HHS. And, you know, I, I personally, I think that bug bounty should be instituted at a lot of these government agencies because these agencies have an enormous amount of PII and it is very hard for even, you know, the CIOs and the CISOs to wrap their arms around what is exactly sitting on their network. So I think a bug bounty way, or excuse me, I think a good way for uh, these agencies to, you know, heighten their security is to crowdsource their security and let people come to them to say, hey, you know, you've, you've got this problem out there. Let's shut this down and, you know, we'll give you a nice little stipend for helping us out. No, and that's fair enough, right? And I and I know a lot of uh, it's it's very popular in the private sector, right? These bug bounty programs aren't merely a governmental thing. Uh, ironically, it seems the bigger dollars are in the private sector. Uh, is that your perception as well? Right. I uh, well, and the interesting thing on the private sector side is that these programs are starting to proliferate outside of the technology sector. I know a couple of months ago, it was a big deal that Fiat Chrysler partnered with a bug bounty company to establish their own, you know, bug bounty system. And you're starting to see this from a lot of other, I would say, quote unquote, traditional sector companies. They're saying, look, we all have these IT systems. We all have some sort of business apparatus that touches the public internet. And if we are not going to spend the dollars internally on cybersecurity, let's crowdsource it. It's a cheap way. And we get these vulnerabilities closed before they end up harming the business tenfold. No, and, that, and that's certainly true. And, and there's a lot of groups of uh, people out there who do it. Some some do it freelance. Some some dedicated. Um, you know, some some will do it as part of f- academic exercises at conferences or, or programs. There there are a lot of people out there that done it. I've I've submitted a few bug bounties with United Airlines. Uh, simply just in my routine of of buying airline tickets, found some issues and reported it to them. So uh, there's a large constituency of people who participate in this. Um, you know, in in the security community, so generally fairly trustworthy people. Now, if only United Airlines could have a bug bounty for customer service, then we'd really oh, be in business. Oh, yeah, exactly right. I mean, and they also, you know, for their ticketing system, right? You know, nothing about uh, about uh, bringing uh, the Chicago Aviation Police on uh, to escort you uh, off the air, <laughs> right? So, um, I do want to keep you on for the next segment. There's a, there's another story I did want to talk about. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy of uh, President Trump encouraging people to call him on his uh, personal cell phone, so he keeps a cell phone that uh, he's taking calls from uh, apparently from foreign leaders uh, so did want to get into that uh, but we do have to take a quick break here so stay tuned uh, you're listening to to Greg Otto of cyberscoop.com uh, he's going to be back with us here after the break you're listening to Cybersecurity today radio with your host John Bambanek and we will be right back scan your computer but don't scan the dial stay right here John Bambanek will be right back You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're 
still tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek. Still with us, Greg Otto of Cyberscoop, cyberscoop.com, our digital partner covering news out of D.C. Uh, related to the government. Uh, and welcome back, Greg. Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, the story uh, the past couple of days. Uh, apparently, uh, President Trump uh, has been encouraging foreign leaders uh, to call him on a personal cell phone, right? Normally, presidents have secure lines in the Oval Office and, and, and whatever, but apparently he's using just a commodity cell phone uh, to be taking calls. Uh, what are you hearing about this story? So, yeah, there has been, you know, a lot of noise that the president does enjoy the creature comforts of his own personal cell phone. And this has been something that has been going on since he was you know, since he's come into office, whether it is just phone calls with foreign leaders, uh, his use of Twitter, this has been a big operational security problem. And I know that there are a lot of information security experts mm -hmm. in the federal government that are just tearing their hair out over the fact that Trump wants to keep using his commodity cell phone. Well, I recall, uh, you know, in the beginning of uh, President Obama's term, right, he uh, got a special BlackBerry. Uh, there's a back and forth, but, you know, he wanted to have a BlackBerry to make phone calls. Is there any indication that that Trump is allowed, I don't know how you do this or what agency is responsible for it, you know, or is this just a cell phone that you or I uh, could buy at pick your whatever retailer? Yeah, from from everything that I have, have seen in reports and, and people that I've talked to is that it looks to be just a commodity Samsung phone. I, I don't want to put out, you know, the the model that mm -hmm. uh, he he is reportedly using. It is out there. I, I don't want to put it out there just in case, oh, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, anybody yeah. gets any ideas. Um, but it's it it is nowhere near the level of security that was implemented into uh President Obama's BlackBerry and the special phone that was developed so he could have some sort of mobile device as he uh you know moved around and carried out his duties um this is this is just it's a very very vexing problem for IT people inside the executive office no, no, I would think so. It's not. I assume it's not one of those Samsungs that you know catch on fire. At least it's not one of those, right? No, no. I, I, I think that no. I, the, the Galaxy Notes. I, I think that even President Trump has the peace of mind not to use uh, a phone that is going to uh, ignite upon use. No, no, that's fair enough. I, it, it, it may reduce the overall Twitter usage if it did. So um, you know, and that might drop Twitter stock price. Uh, it, this, I don't remember if Twitter's publicly traded anyway, uh, but certainly, right? You know, and you know, I know there's some foreign policy concerns, right? Because he's actually calling world leaders and saying, "Call me on that." I mean, do we have any idea to what extent that's happening? I mean, is he having truly classified, confidential phone calls talking about important foreign policy, or is this just, you know, talking to friends, family, donors about inconsequential stuff? Well, it's, you know, you bring up an interesting point that we've covered on CyberScoop this past week. Um, a couple of weeks ago, a transcript leaked between a phone call Trump mm -hmm. had with Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte. And we had a story go live this week that showed that on the other end, on Duterte's end, that transcripts mm -hmm. of Duterte's phone calls had been leaked by an APT group that was linked to Vietnam. So, I mean, it's not just people that are looking 
to gather intelligence on what's going on inside uh, the government directly mm-hmm. that Trump and, and the United States needs to worry about. There are a multitude of countries out there that are looking to gain intelligence on other um, excuse me, other nation states and other countries. So if Trump is not going to use secure channels, he presents an opportunity for nation states looking to gather intelligence on just about anybody that interacts with the U.S. So this Mm -hmm. problem has repercussions outside of, you know, Donald Trump's direct motives. And it's a a worldwide problem. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure the intelligence communities that are looking to uh, gather intelligence around the world are high-fiving one another. But for people that are looking to have confidential conversations with the president of the United States, it might be better to go through a back channel instead of dialing up his direct line. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if I want to operate the, you know, to open up the can of worms of, of presidential back channels. There's a lot of just political news about that in the past week or so, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, that's a topic for a different show. But, but yeah, you know, and, and I was certainly, I did notice that story about the, the Philippine president, and uh, there's a lot of technical back end of that, but kind of the takeaway is what Vietnamese intelligence was able to get a transcript, uh, you know, um, of those conversations. We talk a lot on this show about Russia and China a little bit about North Korea, but uh, the level of entry to espionage uh, via cybersecurity means is nowhere near as high as it is with just conventional, right? I don't need spies all over the world. I don't need networks or embassies and safe houses. You know, I just need a handful of people who are devious, clever, have a baseline of education, and then just let them go and perfect their tradecraft. Um, you know, and there are, uh, there are a variety of things out there. Going back to the cell phone, right? There are attacks on uh, the 4G network that I would presume the Secret Service would notice if somebody tried to do it outside the White House. But to, to capture phone calls and text messages and uh, diminish the security of 4G cellular communications. Uh, so, so certainly there's, there, there's a lot of things that, that could be done, and, and those techniques are online. Right. Right. And and you were just talking about the barrier to entry there. I mean, and going back to the story that we had on Vietnam, the whole mm-hmm. reason that we discovered this Vietnam uh, espionage effort was that they were a little bit sloppy with their operational security. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the sloppiness of the operational security will get you every time. And that's not necessarily a technological problem. That is, like you said, that's a conventional problem. So if adversaries are going to see that there are holes in operational security, the, you know, the conventional tactics are, are going to work. They're not going to need to leverage AI and machine learning. They're just going to do what they've always been doing. No, no, that's ex- exactly right, right? You know, if you're, you're, you're going after a target, I know that's true for my investigations, right? I, I like going after people who have been operating for years because they have to make a mistake once and then we've got them. You know, it's easy to get get it all right one time. But, I mean, when you're doing the same thing for two years, uh, it's easy to miss something because, you know, you kind of get lulled into a sense of complacency. And certainly new people getting in, right? They make a lot of mistakes. You mentioned this with Vietnamese, uh, the, the Vietnamese group. Well, we see a little bit with the North Koreans. Uh, we see a little bit with the Russians. Even in the uh, election stuff last year, they got better as time went on because they were they were leaking metadata of their involvement, and they realized what we were doing and and using it as a learning experience of saying, "Oh, well, we better not do that again." Right. No, and and you're you're absolutely right. 
and you know to to maybe be positive on it maybe somebody inside the white house is is uh reading all of the articles that we have written about signal and has popped open that mm-hmm. app on his phone and maybe he's making encrypted calls i mean we 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 can hope well, no, that's definitely too, uh, true, right? You know, and, and certainly, right, for everybody concerned about your security of messaging uh, and your voice calls, uh, definitely take a look at Signal, S-I-G-N-A-L. Uh, it's in the App Store, Google Play Store. Take a, t- take a look. It's a great uh, application. So coming at the end of our segment here, uh, well, again, uh, thank you for coming on. It's Greg Otto of Cyberscoop.com. I have a lot of great content out there. If you want to hear, uh, see more of news out there in cybersecurity, give them a look. Thank you for being uh, with us today, Greg. Thank you, John. Broadcasting from AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. You can find us online at our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Twitter at CybersecRadio, Facebook.com slash CybersecRadio, and at email at johnbambonekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com, and my personal Personal Twitter account at Bambanek. All right, and stay tuned. We'll be right back. You are listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Dispatches. So people hire you to break into their places to make sure no one can break into their places? From the cyber war. There's a war out there, old friend. A world war. And it's not about who's got the most bullets. It's about who controls the information. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek. Uh, joining me up next for our Cyber War feature is Frank Gaffney, uh, current president of the Center for Security Policy, uh, formerly was Assistant Secretary of Defense under President Ronald Reagan. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So wanted to have you on to talk about uh, you know what our government is doing on uh, the fight of cyber terrorism, right? Is, uh, is it a real risk that we should be concerned about? Is our uh, is the federal authorities now under President Trump taking the right steps? Well, of course, it is a real threat, and I, I hope he's going to be taking the right steps. Um, the trouble is um, knowing really what needs to be done is uh, so challenging, uh, especially since uh, what you knew needed to be done yesterday isn't necessarily what needs to be done tomorrow, uh, or even today for that matter. Um, this is a very dynamic field of, uh, you know, sort of measure versus countermeasure. If uh, you'll follow the logic here, uh, the, the bad guys are often one step ahead of the good guys, um, even in terms of being aware that the bad guys are out there. It just uh, it makes this very challenging. And again, I, I think that uh, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to you know, centralized um, government solutions simply because uh, it's the least agile of uh, of any enterprise, uh, yeah. certainly in, well, yeah. in this space. 
No, no, I definitely see that's true, and and certainly things are uh, are changing very rapidly. You know, there are things I'm working on and, and dealing with today that I wouldn't have thought I would have been dealing on yesterday, uh, last year, or two years ago. I don't think I would have envisioned I would have been dealing with election manipulation and cybersecurity uh, in 2014 and 2015. Yet here we are. Yep. Um, so uh, you know, the president, uh, President Trump, has appointed uh, Rudy Giuliani right as a cybersecurity czar and his advisor. Uh, we have the new executive order on uh, cybersecurity. Uh, you know, what have you what have you heard from? Uh, I don't know if I've seen awful uh, an awful lot from Rudy Giuliani. Uh, are you seeing that he's taken the right steps? What are what are his contributions? And what do you think um, is the net result of that new executive order? Well, uh, I confess Rudy has not shared with me what he's up to, and I don't think he's been discussing much of it in public either. Uh, I think uh, one of the reasons why his appointment uh, was um, encouraging to many of us in the national security space is he's a serious guy, and he's been uh, working on national security issues uh, you know, for decades, and I think is very thoughtful uh, as well as a as a real uh, you know demonstrated leader, so uh, he's got the chops. It seems to me to do the kinds of things that are required. Um, I'm reasonably confident that he's assembling a team of people who will help him do that, and that they will do it uh, to the best it can be done uh, with the kinds of uh, caveats that I said a moment ago. It's 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 a not easy. B it's highly dynamic. C it requires. An ability to to both think uh, out of the proverbial box and respond um, in a very agile and uh, and rapid fire way, and all of that is probably working against him to the extent he's 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 a czar. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, true, and I and there's certainly. Well, there's a lot of uh, you know angst going on right now of, of what exactly lays for uh, you know, lays for the future. You made reference that you know none of this is well suited to government. You know, what do you think the role of the private sector, who typically isn't overly involved in in questions of terrorism, you know, unless you're running you know airports or critical infrastructure? Uh, by and large, the public and private sector don't have much of a role in. Uh, uh, terrorism conventionally, but do you think that's different in, in cyber terrorism? Well, of course, we're not just looking at cyber terrorism, are we? We're, we're looking at what state actors can do and, and have been doing. Uh, notably, we think the North Koreans, uh, the Russians, uh, mm-hmm. certainly the Chinese. Um, I, I think that the private sector has a huge role to play, um, A, because they generally are more agile, um, see, because they've got a lot of equities on the line as well. I mean, there isn't, I think, a company in the country that isn't uh, in one of the other categories that are often described as, you know, you, you, people who have been hacked or people who don't know they've been hacked. Um, that gives rise to a vested interest to help the country um, become more cyber secure. Um, my concern has been, quite frankly, that uh, I think to some extent the public at large, but certainly corporate executives in this country um, have lost sight of the need to be um, national security minded. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're not simply thinking that way. And you know, you look back at the days when AT and T, for example, was uh, essentially working hand in glove with the government to try to make sure that 
you know, intelligence capabilities were protected and, mm-hmm. and effectively utilized. Um, today, I don't need to tell you, I'm sure, most IT companies think of the government as the enemy. And they're working, you know, as aggressively as they can to protect um, the consumer, sure, but uh, perhaps people that you don't want to be shielded, uh, perhaps terrorists, perhaps uh, state actors from being able to be uh, monitored, surveilled by, uh, you know, the appropriately constituted government entities to protect all of us. So I think they've got a very important role to play. I don't that they're uh, all that inclined to step up to it, uh, frankly. Well, no, I think that's a very good point, and here's you to bring up a topic that I think would be great for another show is a conflict of investigators and uh, intelligence agencies going after legitimate threats. I mean, certainly they can overextend, but but certainly in the fight on terror and, and legitimate uh, targets and uh, privacy activists and, and government and compliance and a lot of that, I think that's uh, that's actually a great topic that that's further explore uh, or merits further exploration but we're kind of running at, uh, running at the end of our segment here. But I wanted to go ahead and say uh, thank you, Frank, for joining us, talking about cyber terrorism, what's going on in D.C. Uh, again, president of uh, the Center for Security and Policy. Thank you for coming on, Frank. Pleasure's mine. Thanks for having me. Again, that was uh, Frank Gaffney, uh, president of the Center for Security and Policy uh, in Washington, D.C., that were joining us. So thanks to him for being on. Uh, hopefully you found that interesting. Uh, but certainly he did bring up a great point uh, of some conflicts uh, between investigators and companies who want to shield data. Um, you know, there's a story, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to earmark it to talk about next week, of Tor, uh, some privacy-based web browsing and how it's being uh, used overused, um, becoming a haven for criminality, and how that really affects things. I know in my investigations, I run into some of these privacy shielding services of of really bad people, you know, and it starts leading us to talking about how we can undermine that stuff. Uh, Not that we care about, you know, the democracy activist in China or people with, with privacy, but really criminals, human traffickers, all of these groups out there, you know, are also using these same privacy services. And and going back to a point I made earlier in the hour, right, as a, as a uh, consequence of Edward Snowden's releases, you know, there's certainly been uh, a pendulum swing back the other way of, no, we need to protect privacy. No, we need to protect privacy. Uh, but you have the consequence of, of the excess of that uh, is that a lot of uh, criminals and bad actors end up getting safe haven on some of these services, and it really impedes our ability to bring them to justice, right? So uh, certainly, like I said, that's a very long, involved topic, something that we'll get into, uh, I think, in the coming weeks. I think it's a very interesting um, uh, thing to discuss in that dynamic, and I know uh, a lot of people wonder, hey, how these people commit crimes online? Why are they so hard to catch? Well, uh, part of it is just hard to get the data, and in some cases, we just don't have technical means to get the evidence. Uh, In other cases, they operate out of jurisdictions where the governments are not friendly. So a lot of information there that I think is uh, worthwhile to talk about. But we are coming to the end of the hour. I hope you enjoyed the show and tune in next week to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. You can find us online at cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Twitter and Facebook at CyberSecRadio, and my personal Twitter account at Bambanek. So broadcasting from AM820 News in Tampa Bay and AM1060 
News in Orlando. You have been listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamanek. Hope to hear more from you next week. Uh, we'll take some of your questions of how to best protect you, your family, your business's privacy, and security online.